My sweet little mom used to have a collection of different books on design and architecture. One was a magazine-sized soft cover book that documented in frightening detail what my life might have been like if my parents hadn't lost faith in the sanctified church of the hippie and lifestyle it dictated somewhere in the mid-70s. This book was filled with page after page of ecologically friendly structures that could almost be called houses. The photographs featured shaggy people peeking happily out of a doorway as if to prove humans could inhabit these structures. Most of the buildings were dome-shaped, a few were teepees. There were some tree houses that actually looked really good until you started pondering such things as winter. And each structure was accompanied by diagrams and instructions on exactly how you could replicate these homes for you and your fringe of society unwashed family. The king of the eco-houses was a mossy encrusted dome next to a cave, which I guess served as the garage or perhaps the guest house. This hobbity dwelling, the author gushed, was built entirely from items found in nature or recycled from items of the world of upright man and assembled without using any tools. It was kind of a twig igloo. Water could be brought inside and used for various purposes through a series of pulleys and levers. And there was even a refrigeration system of sorts, at least during the months of the year when the woodland temperatures dipped above freezing. It was definitely a house that the wolf, the big bad wolf, could have huffed and puffed right down with all speed. The house revealed the author had been six years in the making and completing. There were photos of this twig dome in all four seasons. Photos of the plumbing, such as it was. Photos of gentle woodland creatures coming peacefully right up to the dome. Photos of the hippie contractor slash owner cozy in dreamland, wrapped in his hemp and goose feather sleeping bag. The last photo was the best of all because it was an aerial view of the dome and surrounding area. On two sides, woods and hilly places stretched far and wide. On the third side, a small clearing between trees led from the dome to a small pristine brook. And on the final and fourth side, about two city blocks from the dome, was a stretch of highway with a parking lot and a truck stop convenience store. The idea was to show that even in the midst of evil technology, you could build your natural refuge dome home. What it actually seemed to say was that this particular hippie had gotten screwed when it came to location, location, location. So ungroovy. Somewhere out there, I thought, every time I looked at that book, there were little hippie boys and girls my age who basically lived in outdoor forts their whole little growing up lives. I did not envy them. I did, however, envy the little boys and girls who lived in the houses in a larger glossy hardcover book. The title was something like Fantasy Homes, and there were crazy twisted staircases made out of glass bricks, adjoining playrooms connected by a series of huge primary colored human-sized tubes like you'd find at an old Chuck E. Cheese, indoor balconies that looked out over the kitchen, secret passageways, windows from one room to another, and one house with a huge, fake, Wizard of Oz, pale pink and purple fiberglass tree growing from the center of the house all the way through each level and the ceiling and upper rooms and through the roof. The hippie dome people probably would have hated that most of all. I could get lost inside the photos of these rooms for hours. 
and when I would finally put the books away, our own house would seem plebeian in comparison. But actually, the first house I lived in growing up was fairly fantastic in its own right. It was an Iowa farmhouse with a long, wild, sloping-off yard off a gravel road. The front porch wrapped around two sides of the house, and there was a screen porch off the kitchen. Basically, just picture the exact house from Field of Dreams, only with no landscaping and much in need of a paint job. The cellar used to be horse stables and still had the stalls. The floor of the cellar was made of huge chunks of coal, and we only ever went down there during tornadoes. Upstairs, there were two large rooms that looked out over the front of the house, and these rooms were connected by what you would think would be a closet, but which turned out to be a tiny third room. And in that tiny third connecting room, there was a trap door in the ceiling, which pulled down into ladder steps, which led up into an attic. But what was weird was that downstairs, between the kitchen and the back wall of the back porch, was a huge storage room that had a flight of stairs, which led up to a second attic. I had been up in the second attic once. There were gaps in the roof all along the edges, a tiny black upright piano, and cardboard boxes all caved in with moisture and age that my mother shrieked I was never to touch due to mold. We were an allergy-conscious family. So it was fall, it was still bright and sunny, but getting cool, and my mom was beginning her seasonal freakout. These were the crossover years in the hippie into mainstream changeover, and my mom was approaching the final phases of her food self-sufficiency period, which involved chopping, peeling, stewing, and canning great massive vat loads of fruits and vegetables from a vast overflowing Midwestern garden, which involved me helping. First with planting, which was fun, then with weeding, which sucked, then with picking, which was okay, except for the huge black and brown spiders that like to build cities in the tomato plants. And then with the horrible canning process, which was a nightmare second only to turning the compost, which my dad was now doing in the backyard. I had learned that the best way to get out of helping was to do the job badly while complaining constantly. So before long, my mom, hair tied back under a bandana and face red and glistening with steam from the vats, hollered, all right, just go, just go. And I ran upstairs to play before my dad could come onto the back porch and yell, Dasha, I turned over a big shovel full of compost. And guess what I found? Maggots. This is going to be the best compost ever. Tell your mother to get the camera and you grab another shovel. My little brother was still a baby and was taking a nap. Couldn't go downstairs due to the fruit and vegetable sauna. Couldn't go outside due to the maggot menace. So I became somewhat bored. I tried to get myself caught up in my favorite game, which was getting under the covers in my parents' huge bed and crawling around and around and around in a circle until I couldn't tell which direction was which. This game was called Lost at Sea. But even that soon lost its luster. I went into the secret third adjoining room and wanted to take stuffed animals into the attic to play trapped in the tower, but I couldn't reach the trap door. Then I remembered the second attic, but that meant having to sneak either through the kitchen and past my mom or out the front door around back past my dad. Either way put me in major jeopardy of horrible smells and being put to work for the day. Not as bad a fate as living in a moss they glue out by the highway and pooping in a cave, but close. In my parents' big room, where I was getting lost at sea, my mom had a yellow formica top table which held her sewing machine, a really old one you had to operate by stomping your foot up and down on a pedal at the bottom. Inside a drawer in the table was needles and thread and scissors, and in a see-through orangey-brown tackle box was kept all sorts of extra things, fancy patches and buttons and zippers, hooks and eyes, and little jingle bells. 
I took about ten of the jingle bells and got thread from the drawer. My plan was sneak past my mom canning vegetables, tie the jingle bells to the collar of Jessie, our sweet old Irish setter, send her in the kitchen, and then my mom would be mystified with this musical dog and not be able to figure out how such a thing could have happened, and then occupy herself with taking the jingle bells off Jessie's collar. I would then sneak past her with ease through the kitchen into the storage room of the back attic, playtime nirvana, provided nirvana was light-free and moldy, cold, scary, forbidden, and probably rat-ridden. So this wasn't probably a good plan, but in my mind at the time, it was a scheme of savage genius, and I stood at the top of the stairs and called for Jessie. Jessie did not appear. She was, of course, in the kitchen, where she always was if someone else was in there in constant hope something that might pass for food or food might fall to the floor. I couldn't go into the kitchen to get her, as the whole point was to have my mom not see me. Although by this point, I couldn't really remember why that was the point anymore. So, oh, so I wouldn't have to help her can. I paced around the hall that divided our bedrooms at the top of the stairs, looked in at my sleeping baby brother's room and hatched my second scheme. The baby monitor was on, as always, with the other walkie-talkie part down in the kitchen. I would fake the sound of my little brother crying, run out of the room and hide in my room, my mom would come up when she went into my brother's room. I would run downstairs through the kitchen storage room, up in the attic, none the wiser. I tiptoed into the room past my brother Damien in his crib and put my face up next to the baby monitor. <laughs> I said. Then I hauled ass and jumped on my bed. It was terribly exciting. Nothing happened. My room was directly over the kitchen, and on my floor was a large metal heating vent in a large open grid pattern. You could look right down through this vent and see the kitchen below. I peeked through. My mom walked past to the counter, then to the stove, then back to the counter. I went to my brother's room and cried harder. <laughs> then I ran back to my room and checked the heat bake grate again. My mom was vacuum sealing lids onto boiled sterilized bottles filled with disgusting sliced zucchini and tomato combo that we would be eating all winter. She had put an Elizabeth Cotton record on, which meant she was really getting into it. Doesn't this woman care that her infant is crying, I thought, but maybe I had been too quiet and too quick. This time I spared no drama and wailed into the monitor, holding it next to my mouth like I was Tina Turner. It was in this position my mother found me as she walked silently into the room behind me carrying a load of fresh folded laundry. We stared at each other, she with a pile of pastel sleepers and blankets, me clutching the baby monitor. Woman, she said, what are you doing? Nothing, I said and ran, but in my room it hit me. Now there was no one in the kitchen. I opened my door, shut it, so it would seem like I was still in there, beat it down the stairs, through the kitchen, toward the storage door, which is where I tripped over Jessie, who had heard me running, came running out of nowhere towards me to see if we might not run somewhere together and if there might not be food wherever we were going. I bit it onto the kitchen floor. I lay there quietly on my back as the dog licked my face. Vats of green and orange and yellow and red disgusting mushy things bubbled on the stove. My dad walked in the kitchen door. Dale, he hollered. I need lighter fluid. The damn leaves aren't dry enough to burn. Or turpentine. Is that stuff going to poison the compost? He turned and saw me. Hey, kid, he said. What are you doing down there? Nothing, I said. Where's your mother, he asked. Upstairs, I said. Lick, 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 said Jessie. Oh, Lord, in me, didn't I shake, sugary, said my mother upstairs over the baby monitor. Why don't you go up and dig through the storage room there, said my dad, pouring himself a glass of water out of the tap. There's all sorts of boxes of stuff in there. We've got to clear that place out one of these days. 
Then he went back to contend with his leaves. I couldn't believe it. I had just been ordered to not help with the compost and give an invitation to the very place I was trying to sneak into. Of course, the plan once in the storage room was to go right up to the attic. But I figured I, was do, I would do as I was told and poke around the storage room first. One wall of this room was half screen, like one huge window covered over with plastic. This room had been the original back porch before the screen porch on the other side of the plastic had been added on. There were tiny windows on two of the walls, over which was more plastic sheeting, edged and held on with a staple gun. My old rocking horse was in there. I hadn't outgrown it, I just didn't like it. Its big freaky side eye stared at me under long spidery glued on eyelashes. There were boxes and boxes of things to look at. Things in milk crates, things in trunks. It was sensory overload. It was weird that I'd never rummaged around the storage room or even thought about it. But maybe not, because I was probably five, and five is pretty much like being stoned all the time. Your sense of time, your level of fascination, the way you can get absorbed in a bug for an hour at a time. I mean, you know, I assume that's what it's like. In many ways, also, it sucks to be a little kid. You're not as dumb as most of the adult world thinks you are. In fact, you often have adult thoughts and emotions. You just lack the vocabulary to explain them or the life experience to process them. Unfortunately, almost all adults seem to forget this and deal with you like a moron. You have almost no independence. The possibilities for getting in trouble are endless. People give you bad, bad haircuts. But there are advantages as well. For example, bugs are not scary. You can pick up a praying mantis, a roly-poly, or centipede. I often did. I cannot mysteriously do this today. I don't know when that happened. Also, whereas today I know everything that is in my house and more or less where it is and where it came from, at that age, there were whole rooms I barely realized existed, like this one, filled with fascinating discoveries and mysterious objects and so on. Anyway, though it was a sunny day, the storage room was very cold and in sort of a milky darkness. There were just a few tiny high windows, again stapled over with thick sheets of plastic. In this room, the stuff was not just ours. It was also cast-offs from however many people had passed through the farmhouse before us. We had been studying pirates in school, but not geographical specifics. So I figured the likelihood of finding pirate treasure was pretty high, deposited by the swashbucklers of the Midwestern Plains. The glorious buccaneers of the Corn Belt, it soon became evident, favored not gold doubloons, but rather great piles of nasty-ass moldy clothing and dusty empty glass jars. So I skipped ahead and got to the trunks. The first trunk had no latches, and inside, bunches of newspaper wrapped around little individual boxcars from a model train. This was fairly neat, but there was no track and no engine and no caboose. Under the newspaper bunches, there were a series of stuffed animals. So of course my little heart gave a little lurch, but just a little one. These weren't the plush, gummed type, snuggly, fur cute face stuffies that you would want to take to bed with you and arrange and talk quietly to. They were the sort of matty haired, googly eyed, bright colored, vaguely evil stuffies that you might win at an old carnival that suddenly disappeared and wasn't there the next day. The hillbillies of the stuffed animal world. But a stuffy was a stuffy, and I had a wave of compassionate sorrow. They had been hidden away in a trunk, so I took them out and gave each one a quick, charitable squeeze. There was a sort of giraffe, horse-looking thing, stuffed with what felt to be solid styrofoam, sort of mint green, wearing a dark green t-shirt. 
There was a rust-colored shag-furred thing, which I can only describe as sort of a starfish with a face. It looked like something Cookie Monster might have left in a Muppet toilet. A long purple and pink striped snake with a felt-pointed tongue, with all of its filling bunched up in clumps, so it was like a horrid string of sausages from the Dr. Seuss deli. And then there was a huge yellow banana, maybe three feet long, and as thick at the middle as a football, with big, disturbingly happy, glued-on felt eyes and mouth, and inexplicably a little blue felt vest and a yellow felt policeman's badge. Sheriff Banana. There were little patchy spots on what would have been the side of Sheriff Banana's head, indicating that a hat had once been there. Because, you know, what's a banana sheriff without his hat? I sat looking at it, and it was weird because I could so clearly picture this missing hat. And then I remembered, all in a sudden rush, that this was in fact my toy, and that I had gotten it when I was visiting my Uncle Chaz and Aunt Dot in Chicago. Chaz and Dot were rich and had two kids, who were my cousins, who I like now, but we hated each other when we were little. I hated them because they got whatever they wanted and always had tantrums. They hated me because sometimes when I visited as the poor relative, their parents would give me toys, and in fact sometimes gives me their toys as a lesson to them because I was good and did not have tantrums. In order to thwart this trend, whenever we would play together, the cousins would offer me up their worst, their worst toys in hopes that these might be the ones I ended up with if Chaz and Dot taught them a lesson. I don't remember what game it was the cousins and I played, but I ended up with Sheriff Banana. At some point, as always, the cousins ended up screaming and throwing sofa cushions and got sent to their rooms by their dad, and I was left in the living room holding the banana. Chaz, my uncle, who had red hair and a black beard, smiled at me, the good child. You like that crazy thing? He asked, meaning this hideous fruit lawman. Yeah, I said, not wanting to seem rude. And so I was stuck with it. It sat next to me on the floor as I sat and watched the Three Stooges on TV with Chaz and his leather barker lounger. Aunt Dot came in with Kool-Aid. Ugh, what is that thing, she asked. Well, whatever it is, it sure looks happy, said Chaz. But you know what they say, good apple, bad banana. They say what, said Aunt Dot. Good apple, bad banana, you just made that up. You can't just make up proverbs. Good apple, bad banana, said Chaz. You know bad banana you mean a bad apple said dot a bad apple spoils the barrel you can say top banana bad banana is not an expression a bad banana spoils the bunch said jazz a bad banana spoils the bunch certainly said curly on the tv no you're crazy it's bad apple in the barrel said dot i just looked at the big yellow monstrosity his huge felt eyes stared dead ahead and his big felt grin whispered hello partner uh I thought, and I deliberately left it behind when my parents and I drove back home. But when I got home and opened my little suitcase, there he was, the sheriff, right on top of my clothes with a little note taped to where his forehead was supposed to be, but he was a banana, reading, look who you almost forgot, love Auntie Dot. I have no recollection of what happened after that or how the hat got ripped off. Maybe we gave it to the dog to play with, but here he was again. The sheriff was back in town. We were reunited. I guess there was something touching about it. I decided I would gather up all these discarded and unloved ugly pariah trunk stuffies and make my own island of misfit toys. What more perfect place than the forbidden attic? I dug through the rest of the trunk. 
I found a doll with a Barbie-sized body but a grapefruit-sized head with a pull string in back, which when yanked would make the doll blink, and her eyeballs would rotate and reveal different colored sets of eyes from blue to orange to green to pink. I know that these are actually collectible now as I've seen them on Etsy, but it's horrifying to see at the time and in its day. There was one of those flat wooden dogs with their dog features painted on both sides with a leather tongue and leather tail. And the tongue and tail were one and the same piece of leather, so if you pulled the tongue, the tail would get short and vice versa. A snow globe where all the creatures or people in the snow scene had come loose and all floated around with the swirling snow. I gathered up all of these and more in my arms and headed up the near old rotten steps with gaps in between them like a ladder that led to the attic. I went back down and deposited the toys when I found I couldn't open the door. Went back up and opened it and went back down, got the toys, went back up. The attic was black and cold and dark. There was a little edge of white light all around the roof perimeters due to little gaps. The roof was just beams of paper covered with slices of insulation and peppery, peppery rat droppings. Why the hell had I wanted to come up here? Why had I schemed all day to get here to this horrible place? And why was my mother screaming downstairs? I ran down the stairs, out through the kitchen and outside. My dad had set the dry leaves on top of the compost pile on fire. The fire had leapt up and caught the edge of the wooden fence behind the pile. The flames had then spread down the pickets of the fence and caught the garage roof on fire. There was to be no more boredom that day. The firemen came, my dad got yelled at by the firemen, my dad then got yelled at by my mom, and I got yelled at by my mom and dad. For what? Nothing. And vegetable canning had to be postponed until the next day and all the confusion, and this time I didn't get out of it, and as far as I know, those toys are still up there in the attic, and I don't like thinking about it.